welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode we ask, what exactly do we do all day? I'm talking to Professor Stephen Connor, Director of CRASH and Grace II Professor of English at the University of Cambridge. Over the past 40 years, he's written on some big literary beasts, Dickens, Joyce and Beckett, as well as about the smaller things that make life interesting. But now he's working on work itself. At the precise moment, millions of pandemic-fatigued employees worldwide are voting with their feet in a movement known as the Great Resignation. Connor has always loved his job, but is it time for the rest of us to employ a more critical view? I'm here to meet Professor Stephen Connor today, fellow of Peterhouse College, which is the oldest Cambridge College, founded in 1284. And right now I'm making my way up the stairs to find out where he lives and works while here. Up the stone steps here, up L staircase, Professor Connor, here we go. Good morning. Catherine, hello. Thank you. Come Two doors. In. My goodness me, what a Two beautiful doors. room. Yes. This is amazing. You described it to me on the phone as being a little bit like Wind in the Willows. And it is rather a book-lined yes. retreat. I think what I might have had in mind is that this is called a set, which really means a set of rooms, but in- inevitably it suggests set with a double T, where a badger kind of sits and smokes his pipe. If, if that's what badgers do. Tell me what you have in your set. So this is where well, you live and work. You are literally working at home. In I that. am literally working, working from at home. home. You're living at work. This is very common in fellows of colleges. This is a very nicely appointed sitting room with a large sofa and chairs and a desk and a very big screen because I also show films here to the students that I teach cinema to. And then, then there is a, a, a little rather monastic looking bedroom cell with a bathroom shower room alongside so I'm fairly self-sufficient I I do have to share the kitchen which is called the jip with the students which is not a pleasant experience Um, but I try to resist telling them off like I used to tell off my children for not doing the washing up it's a generally pleasantly infantilizing experience coming to a place like this Well, you are doing that very 2021 thing of working from home or living at work, as you say. And you also have the world's shortest commute, probably. This is true. I mean, Peterhouse is very popular with engineers because the engineering department is right at the end of the garden. And I gather the record for bed to lecture room is about just over three minutes (laughs) for an engineering student. But I can top that because I can just roll out of bed, fire up the computer and I'm away. And the library is only about three minutes away so I have a sort of fantasy of my castle library that I can just wander about the place. Well your latest book is all about work so let's sit down in your workplace and you can tell me more about it. Let's do that. (laughs) 
Well, Steve, we're sitting in your book-lined set now, looking at all the things on your shelves. You're a professor of English, and that is absolutely clear from where you're living right now. But how do you answer the question, which is so boring and yet so relevant to what you're writing on right now? What do you do? That is a very hard question to answer, because when you ask somebody what they do, you mean what you do for a living rather than how do you fill your time. But there are certain ways of doing things for a living, being a professor of English, which is what I am in the University of Cambridge, which do seem to encompass a lot of other kinds of things that would ordinarily be things you would do in your spare time. Reading, for example, you know, I do... Well, I don't spend a lot of time reading actual books anymore. You might be astonished and appalled to hear. I am astonished, not appalled. Well, to read a whole book, I think, given my conditions of work, I think would be amount to professional malpractice, I think, on my part, really, because of the time it takes. So in theory, people sometimes look at the books on my shelf and they say, "Have, have you... Have you read all these books? And I have read all of them, but I couldn't tell you anything about any of them because that's the point about a book. You don't need to remember it. You can look it up. So that's a rather rambling way of thinking about what it is I do. I'm a professor of English, which gives me license to reflect on the nature of the things that people do and the stories that they tell themselves about what it is that they think they're up to. We've got a rather beautiful aid memoir here of what you do or what you're interested in here on the table in front of us. It's a wooden box filled with things. And that was a gift when you were just about to set off and join us here at Cambridge in 2012. It was a gift from your colleagues at Birkbeck in London. Tell me what's in the box and what it's meant to represent. Yes, the box has a glass front. So you can see in the box, and I think it's probably inspired by the work of the surrealist artist Joseph Cornell, who used to make these things. But this is really something like a grave hoard, as the archaeologists call it, the the kinds of things that my colleagues imagined I would perhaps be buried with. Maybe that's what they were suggesting to me about moving to Cambridge. I mean, it came out of a book I wrote called Paraphernalia, and I've always been very interested in the sort of qualities and textures of ordinary things in people's lives, that we are full of expertise and subtle understanding of without necessarily quite being able to articulate it. I once I once was at a very, very dour conference about cultural studies, popular culture in Germany, and I don't want to stereotype here, but it was very, very earnest until I said, well, when I was, I can't remember why, when I was young, I remember the girls used to have sweets that they wore bracelets and very they got very very sticky sort of bracelets and necklaces uh and instantly this liberated this great this this great trove of knowledge that people had about about sweets and confectionery and so forth and i suddenly thought these people are experts in things that they don't know that they're experts in so I wrote a book called Paraphernalia, which is about the things that it seemed to me that I discovered I had uh, often rather deep and tender feelings about that were just part of my ordinary life. And here is a box that's actually got some sweets tumbling down at the bottom. They're rather skillfully suspended uh, in midair. There's sellotape, there's um, a mirror and a comb and a key and some spectacles and some batteries, all of which I write about in this book, um, Paraphernalia, suspended here as though 
it were what my life had added up to up till that point. And I keep it. So it's a box of enthusiasms and obsessions and things that you notice and want to find out more about. Yes, it is. And um, uh, I don't, don't look at it very often, but it's rather, it's rather a, a pleasant thing in a kind of memorial sort of way um, <laughs> to look at what it is that you, you might one day be thought to have amounted to. Well, let's go back to the beginning for a minute, which I don't always do in Thoughtline Straight from the beginning, but according to your personal website, you were expelled from school. Yes. That's Christ's Hospital School in Sussex. You were expelled in 1972. Now, we're going to be talking about working today, Steve. Were you expelled for not working or was it something naughtier? No, no, it wasn't very naughty. It was like most things in my life a good but rather clumsy story. So this was a period during which other southeastern public schools were very, very assiduous in setting up LSD laboratories and, you know, <laughs> buying and selling drugs of various kinds during the 1970s. And we were very close to London, just outside Horsham in Sussex, Christ's Hospital. And so you could quite easily get up to London. And so I placed an order for some drugs. I was hoping to acquire some cannabis from a friend who was going up to Shepherd's Market, which was where you, you bought this. Usually he would come back with little screws of silver paper containing OXO cubes, which, you know, sold for a lot of money in those <laughs> days. Anyway, I made the mistake of writing my name on the list with my order. And <laughs> since the headmaster had, had said that there really had to be a crackdown on this, depravity I had to go there was a clear out a number of us um, we just started an art history A level it's a pity because the entire art history set were obviously part of this inducement and I went to Bognor Regis Comprehensive School which was at that time the largest school in Europe it was full of the completely unbridled academic ambition that comprehensive schools were at that point I think in the year that I was there in the sixth form 12 students went to Oxbridge. Including just, you? Including me, yes. Um, and unbelievably well-equipped. I'd never seen a language lab before. So I did very well indeed. And I sort of wish I hadn't been expelled, but it's much more interesting to talk about than... Though, though I, I do wish it was, was for something, you know, some sort of act of arson or something <laughs> a little bit more dramatic. But, <laughs> but it, it feels of a piece with the way in which my life tends to work out. Well, I would love there to be a box with some kind of shocking letter from that headmaster or that a, a report card saying, you know, Connor will never amount to anything. And yet yes. here you are, uh, here you are, you've written 20 plus books on, well, various topics. You start with those classic big authors of English literature. So Charles Dickens, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett. And then you seem to move into big themes such as knowledge and virtues that are underappreciated, such as gratitude and politeness and apologising and being a good loser. And you've written a philosophy of sport. You've written a book about the fly and a book about skin and one on ventriloquism. There's a book on seriousness coming out quite soon, I know, from you, and one on begging. I mean, that's a huge output from someone who was ordering yeah. cannabis in 1972. Yes. Well, perhaps it was just as well it never arrived. <laughs> but um, <laughs> when I got my first job contract, I was very, very lucky and was given a job in Birkbeck almost the second that I completed my DPhil thesis. And I read the contract and it said that, that the contract holder will pursue research leading to publication. And I thought you had to. Oh. Um, 
And it seems you don't actually, if you look around. But I, th I just thought you had to. I thought I, I needed to find things to write about. And so whenever I am asked to write something about Dickens or about Joyce or about Beckett, I'm very, you know, favourably disposed to the idea. But actually what happened is that those particular writers in some kind of configuration, and I think it has something to do with the hold of comedy on me, just have generated all the other things. And actually, people who know me well, including the person who devised the magic box that we talked about earlier, say, well, I can see where all of these things come from. Very often from a little chance remark in a bit of Beckett or, or Dickens. So those authors are still very much your guiding stars. But your book on work, which you're hard at work on now, is going to be your last book before this enforced retirement that the university rather cruelly imposes on its staff coming up next year in September. So why is this the final thing you had to work on? Well, actually, funnily enough, I don't know if it, it will be. There might be other things that I would write. But um, it felt uh, like an interesting predicament to be in, prompted by all of the thoughts that we have now all of the really quite complicated speculations and thoughts and dreads and desires and fantasies we have about the nature of work and what it means to stop working that seemed to me to be really quite propitious to write about this. Really, this book sort of grew out of the last chapter of the previous book. I was writing a book about the idea of seriousness. What does it mean? Why do human beings have what Philip Larkin calls a hunger to be serious sometimes? And I thought, well, we're very, very serious about work. It's almost the definition of seriousness. Getting, Let's get to work on this. You know, we've really got to take this seriously, roll up our sleeves and all, all of those sorts of pantomimes. And I thought, well, at the point at which you're supposed suddenly not to be serious about work and to be in some paradoxical way serious about not working, ceasing to work, that seemed to me, as I say, to be a useful alignment of the stars to write about some of the different aspects of working. Work is a preoccupation for Dickens and for Beckett. It's sometimes said that, you know, to live one day of Dickens's life would be enough to kill most, you know, <laughs> healthy, full-grown humans. And Nora Barnacle, James Joyce's wife, used to know that things were going well on the 19-year project of writing Finnegan's Wake that Joyce undertook because she would hear him giggling as he was writing. And I thought, that's a funny kind of work, you know. There is another story about Beckett, which is that somebody met him in the street and knowing how Samuel Beckett tended to play the part of Samuel Beckett, um, said, um, what have you been up to today? And Sam said, oh, I've been, been working hard on a new thing, probably won't come to anything. And his interlocutor said, well, yes, I know, it must be terrible toil, torture. And Beckett said, no, joy, uh. which is not what you expect perhaps to hear from Samuel Beckett. So the, the joy of toil and the sort of oddity of all of that have always been buzzing around my mind. Steve, you mentioned Philip Larkin, who famously was a poet, but never worked at being a poet because he was always a university librarian. And his most famous incarnation of work is as a toad. And I was wondering if you could tell me, is he the best working, non-working poet you know? And why do you like him? 
Well, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure about the best, but, you know, really all poets are part-time poets. Hardly any poets ever get to be paid full-time. Shakespeare couldn't manage it. Um, and, in fact, Philip Larkin once said rather glumly, quite a lot of what he said, he said rather glumly, that somebody had said something very nice about his poetry. And he said, well, if you think my poetry is so good, why don't you pay me a bloody salary? Uh, but mostly we don't. Toads by Philip Larkin. Why should I let the toad work squat on my life? Can't I use my wit as a pitchfork and drive the brute off? Six days of the week it soils with its sickening poison just for paying a few bills. That's out of proportion. Lots of folk live on their wits. Lecturers, lispers, losels, lob lolly men, louts. They don't end up as paupers. Lots of folk live up lanes with fires in a bucket, eat windfalls and tin sardines. They seem to like it. Their nippers have got bare feet, their unspeakable wives are skinny as whippets, and yet no one actually starves. Ah, were I courageous enough to shout, Stuff your pension! But I know all too well that's the stuff that dreams are made on. For something sufficiently toad-like squats in me too. Its hunkers are heavy as hard luck and cold as snow. And will never allow me to blarney my way to getting the fame and the girl and the money all at one sitting. I don't say one body's the other, one's spiritual truth. But I do say it's hard to lose either when you have both. In the draft chapters of the book that I've read, there's a section on being busy and busyness and business. And yeah. you say work to be real must be what we call hard. Yes. And yet later on, you also say, I've read surveys which report that many people regard the most desirable job as that of writer. This is presumably in part because writing appears to be a work of pure and effortless invention, a kind of systematised and salaried daydreaming yes so 20 books in is that how you see writing is it joy or where is the drudgery for you well there, what's the I, hard bit there absolutely has to be some drudgery this is one of the things that i think about this i mean i'm very puritanical about writing i try to write every day i feel a bit seedy and sick if i haven't written anything when you say anything how much are we talking about? well hardly anything Actually, because it's every day, people make a big fuss about writing things. But if you write, sorry, this is going to sound very obsessive compulsive, but if you write 100 words a day, you are writing a 72,000 word book every two years. Which is effectively what you're doing. Or Something you're doing like more. that, yeah. I mean, it occurs to me that perhaps actually if I wrote at a different time of the day, less under the influence of extremely strong coffee, maybe there would be a bit more sort of purposiveness about my writing. I remember during the 1970s, people used to like to feed spiders 
different kinds of mood-altering drugs and see what their webs look like as a sort of <laughs> image of the effects. And so, you know, if you if you gave a spider LSD, the webs were all loopy and uh, w- without definition. And if you gave them amphetamines, they were jagged and spiky. But if you gave them caffeine, no structure of any kind whatsoever. So this is obviously somehow what is, you know, the kind of cognitive rearrangements, the caffeine. And I often wonder that, you know, almost every word I've ever written or at least published has been written within 45 minutes of this intake of caffeine. And when does that happen? Nowadays, around seven o'clock, always in the morning, this monastic habit came about when our children were born and they both slept, you know, very well and very obediently, but they did wake up at half past five or six. So I had to be up even earlier than they were in order to do any writing. And it turned out that it, it worked for me. And I got very, very used to doing little bits. Actually, there is a cognitive point in this. If you write a little bit every day, and it really does have to be every day, then you are programming yourself. If you start writing at a more or less the same time the following day in more or less the same endocrine condition, so with a cortisol surge that comes, 25% increase in cortisol for most people in the hour after waking, amplified by coffee, you are instantly plugged back into the continuity of your thinking. So you would think this would be a very ragged, piebald way of writing, but actually I find that the continuity of doing that little bit every day and therefore programming yourself to limber up during the rest of the day, so you've got a sort of ground base running through the day of the thing you're thinking about. If you set aside eight hours on a Friday, as many academics like to do, it's useless because you spend the first four hours trying to remember where you were. Right. So little and often is the key. And don't worry if your web's too messy. Yes. Okay. (laughs) You don't yet have a title, I don't think, for the book that you're working on. But you suggested that a good subtitle might be why all work is imaginary and why we have to work so hard at pretending it isn't. Yes. So I was going to ask you, what kind of work do you think a university thinks it's doing? Because there's been a lot of attacks recently on particularly your area, the arts, social sciences and humanities. In June this year, 2021, the government said it would reduce funding for low-value degrees, which includes the ones that you and I and our producer Carl here all did. Low-value degrees. Uh, Apparently, we're not job-relevant enough. So what kind of work are we doing? That is very bizarre because actually the the particular targets of uh, of the government's cuts were, in fact the only areas of the arts and humanities that reliably make lots of money, so performing arts and media arts and so forth, and as we know, make much, much more money than the sciences that mostly make no money at all, with occasional exceptions. So that is a pity. I think that the job of what has come to be called the humanities, it was never known as that when I was a student, it was the arts, is to make life interesting. Now, That doesn't sound like it's very important, but it's more important to be interesting than important. It's important that we have vaccines that keep us alive, and it's important that we have enough of our lives left over from working to be able to wonder what our lives are for, which is what human lives are for. Human lives are for wondering what human lives are for. And the ways in which we wonder that can, I think, amply be fed by the things called 
the arts, but I, I don't think we have much confidence in the arts. I think we would like to be thought useful and important. I mean, here's the biggest embarrassment about the study of literature, that we carefully conceal in almost everything we say and do in academic literary studies. We do it for fun. Yeah. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone because you would not suspect this for a second. I think a lot of academics, a lot of people who do contrive to get paid for things that they can't quite admit are really good fun. I think there's a certain kind of embarrassment and almost shame sometimes so that you have to kind of complain about how exhausting it is and all, all of those kinds of things. It does seem to me that by seeking to be important that the humanities are relegating themselves to a, a kind of branch of social mood management, which would be a pity. How are we doing that? I have to say that the landscape of funding, I think, has had a very deleterious effect on work in the humanities, mostly because people don't want to fund things that are merely interesting. They want to fund important things. It's, I suppose it's quite right of them. And if I were a donor, if I were giving money, I'd probably, you know, give money for people who were trying to cure a disease or something like that, rather than to reflect on what a strange thing work is. You know, so inevitably... First of all, the arts, which were mostly about the whole sphere of made-up stuff in human history, started to be called the humanities. There were no faculties of humanities, really, in the 1970s. Cambridge has two now, different flavours of humanities. Humanities signals the movement of the arts towards areas of social concern and so-called relevance and moment and importance. And as I say, I, I think it I think it signals the kind of relegation of those forms of inquiry. I, I mean, I, I, I have to say that I do not, I am not an art for art's sake person. It's just that the field of utility, of what things are good for, is much, much more various than we allow ourselves to understand. As the director of CRASH, which is another part of your work here at Cambridge, it's the interdisciplinary space. It's where people are still very much pursuing interesting things for their own sake. It's 20 years old this year, of course, 2021, and you'll be leaving as its director in September 2022. So you've got probably just under a year left. Where do you see the future of an institution like CRASH and the work that it does? Are the most interesting things being done in the interdisciplinary space? Is that how we're keeping vital and maybe just English, plain English on its own is not work? I think that the ideal of interdisciplinarity is washed up. The practice of it and the outcomes of it are still, you know, amply possible. I do think that there are forms of interesting abrasion that can come about when you do put things together, you know, that are not usually put together. But my principle has always been that there's no point in striving to be interdisciplinary, as many, many people do. And they strive to proclaim themselves interdisciplinary, especially when they're, they're, they're trying to get funding for something. But the real way to be interdisciplinary is just to be serious about something. And I do think that there are many, many ways of being serious about lots and lots of things that are genuinely interesting, that they might not always at first glance seem particularly important, that will inevitably convoke different kinds of understanding, different kinds of history. A lot of this came for me from writing a book about the history of ventriloquism, 
that I imagine would be a sort of 35-year history centred on the middle of the 19th century and would be all about popular entertainment and musical. Turns out to be 2,000 years old, at least. And the number of people who've put themselves, as it were, cognitively in charge of ventriloquism is extraordinary. In some eras, it's a political matter. In other eras, it's a medical matter or a religious matter. So, you know, you can follow almost any kind of subject. And if you're really, really serious about it, that's to say you're not editing out the things that aren't supposed to belong to the profile of that topic. You'll have to draw in different ways of thinking and you'll, you'll have to make yourself, you know, passably expert in those things. So that, that's the way that I think of these things. I think when we were speaking on the phone ahead of this interview, you called the sort of reduction of the humanities, the death of the dignity of interesting things. So if we aren't allowed by our conception of work, important, hard work, to just be doing things because they're interesting and fun, we then very quickly get into the realm of something else you talk about in your book, which is bullshit jobs. Yes. Um, now, that term was coined by the American anthropologist David Grober in 2019, and many people do actually secretly believe or worry that they might have a bullshit job yes. as opposed to a writer who's having a whale of a time. Yes, exactly. There are so many occupations that seem to consist of pointless bits of ceremony, you know, moving things around. Bertrand Russell defined work as arranging states of matter at or near the surface of the earth relative to other such matter. Uh, <laughs> that or telling other people to do it. Um, and the latter is, of course, much better paid and, and more enjoyable. But all work is, is sorting, actually. Whether it's physical or mental or academic or whatever, it's, it is moving things around into different kinds of configuration. But some of it does honestly feel to many, many people very, very pointless. So there is a certain kind of crisis in work. There is always a crisis in work because we've always got to talk ourselves into it. We've got to talk ourselves into doing it because we don't want to do it. But we've also got to talk ourselves into believing that what we're actually doing is work rather than a complex and elaborate and arduous kind of skiving, which many jobs consist of. I am not an anarchist who believes that we should do away with work altogether because I think then we're in despair because I think we are absolutely necessarily addicted to the making of factitious seriousness that work provides for us. Work is the unnecessary necessity for humans. It's absolutely necessary that we have some unnecessary thing to do. And that's not true of any animal. All the things that animals do are necessary for their survival but it's necessary for humans to have unnecessary things that they can pledge themselves to and in many cases sacrifice their whole lives to but then you have that horrible moment where you do wonder was it all worth it because yeah. here we are globally at a point now thanks to a pandemic that we have all first of all had to find new ways to work ways that invade our home lives the, the boundaries have been blurred very much over the last two years between what work is and is work important clearly making a vaccine is terribly important but all of these other thousands of millions of zoom calls that everybody else has been turning themselves into a pretzel to have yes there's been a big crisis hasn't there of people 
sitting at home and thinking, what am I actually doing? Yes, and I think it was Julie Birchall, but reporting somebody else's view that suggested that actually there has been no lockdown. There's just been middle-class people hiding at home while working-class people bring them stuff. And there is a certain amount of rearranging matter at or near the centre of the earth that just has to be done. You know, bins need to be emptied. I was once a bin collector, the second best job I've ever had. Where were Uh, you doing that? That was in Bognor Regis when I was a student. So I have enormous admiration for for bin men and women and people who bring you stuff, you know, that does require a certain amount of arduous work. But actually, it's not a matter of how many goods there are that need to be distributed. It's the act of circulating things that somehow maintains the fabric of social life insofar as it depends upon work. And there are moments when we come close to realising that, that are moments of crisis and despair, and often drive people into absurd notions that what we really need is real jobs, you know, as opposed to as opposed to phantasmal jobs, bullshit jobs. But I don't think there really are any real jobs in that sense. Certainly jobs that make you tired and sweaty, you know, playing football at the weekend makes you tired and sweaty is not enough to characterize the nature of the labor, or even indeed the good that it is supposed to do, work is always a paradox in that it is a a kind of ardour or exaction that counts as work. And it's the counting as work that is at periodic moments thrown into a certain kind of crisis. It's the counting as work that we all have to agree on. That's the work of work. Yes, because we have to have it acknowledged as work. And it's that acknowledgement and recognition seems to be one of the most important things in working. What has happened to work in the last two years since you've been working on this book? Well, I mean, in a way, I think it's very dramatic because of the sort of decorporealization of work. On the other hand, I think it's just another round in, in a series of transformations of virtualizations of the act of work, you know, that has become progressively less a matter of physically moving things around and more a matter of uh, sorting things or, or, or making interesting stuff up. I hope to talk in the book about a product, an olive oil, that is called Honest Toil Olive Oil. So... It's a good joke because the making of olive oil has for centuries been proverbial for the creation, the extraction of value and sweetness from labour, the trampling of the olives and so forth. So it's honest toil. But the work of the advertising company that has come up with the name Honest Toil, is that honest toil? How honest is it? And in fact, This is one of the things that sustains me through the writing of this book, that the most important thing about work is not whether it's effective or tiring or valuable, it's whether it's real, you know, whether we're actually working or not. That existential anxiety as to whether our work is real, not actually what the work is. You know, there are always struggles about this. For example, Christianity is It has got the reputation of being very serious about work. But there's a very strong current in Christianity which is deeply subversive about the question of work. And the way of being holy for many early Christians was just to kind of go off into the wilderness. 
It's the refusal of purposive labor in Christianity that is one of the most radical things about it. You talk in the book, I think, about work as redemption. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah. In Christianity, it's the fall that has condemned us to work. We wouldn't have to work if we hadn't eaten the apple and got expelled from the garden. And what I think that bequeaths to other systems of thought is the idea that work itself must be the subject of redemptive transformation. So that we not only have a responsibility to work, we also have a responsibility to work on our work, to make it into what, this is a whole academic subdiscipline, what nowadays is called meaningful work. There is such a thing as meaningful work studies. I don't know whether meaningful work studies itself counts as meaningful work, but it plainly does. But the idea that that your work has not only to be work, but to be meaningful in the way in which work is said to be meaningful, not just fun, but to somehow fulfill you to somehow, I mean, you know, the the religious way in which Marx talks about the blending of a subject and an object that comes about through the act of labour. And people never use the word work because we always have two words for everything in English. And if they use the Latin word, you know that they're trying to plump up the dignity of the thing they're talking about. So work is just Anglo-Saxon, but labour is metaphysical. And Marx talks about this metaphysical blending of the subject and the object. He takes it from Hegel, a vast tradition, alive and well today, certainly alive and well in meaningful work studies, is dedicated to this principle that we need somehow to redeem ourselves and to transform in some marvellous, magical way our relationship to a world in which things stubbornly refuse to come to us just because we say, come over here, chair. You know, that, that world in which we have to move things around and get tired. We somehow, you know, we really need to overcome that. I must ask you, in your draft chapter on idling and not working, you do talk about a job that you describe as an unbelievably boring deburring machine. What is that? I am on record. I have written about this in a book called Living by Numbers. This was a job in a printed circuit, electrical circuit factory, a bit of light industry in Bognor Regis where I was growing up, another student, not nearly as good as the dustbin's job. And my job was to take a very large pile of copper rectangles that had been stamped out of a large sheet of copper and to take the rough edges off it with a machine called a deburring machine. So there were four edges and I had to go zoop, 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 many, many times a day. And At the time, I was supposed to be reading metaphysical poets and things like that because I was going up to Oxford at the end of the summer. And I made a little bargain with God, like people often do in these kinds of extremity. I said, if I ever, ever complain about having as a task to read a poem ever again, let me be struck down dead on the spot. And I haven't been struck down dead yet. And I don't think I've complained too much about it because compared with this... Any kind of work that one could imagine would be miraculously fulfilling. Of course, once I started thinking in that kind of way, I did the thing that people always do with very, very boring work, which is to try to evade it. But you had to keep up your rate. So the only way to cheat 
under those circumstances is to bring time under tension by creating little narratives out of something that otherwise would entirely erode temporality at all, just one thing identically after another. So I would think, well, look, if I could do 10 of these in the next minute, I can have 20 seconds off. And if I can really sprint and I can do kind of 60 at a prodigious rate, I could have a fag. You had to smoke when you were working in those days. It was part of the rules. And in the end, I actually started quite looking forward to going to work and seeing if I could beat my record. The problem is there are other workers in this factory who have probably to spend the best part of their lives doing this at the blistering pace that I was setting because I knew I was out of there in a fortnight. Um, So you actually undermined everyone else's work. I did. I was a kind of industrial terrorist (laughs) in this respect. And like a lot of students who defeat the boredom of their work by, by mischievously working more effectively, I was soon put in my place and, you know, I was made to realise I should just subside to the sort of sluggish rate of production that everybody else did to make their lives tolerable. So off to poetry for you. Off to poetry for me, yes, yes. But it also taught me that there is no work that doesn't contain a certain possibility of drudgery precisely in order to deliver the value of the defeat of drudgery that we're sort of quite good at as humans. Toads Revisited by Philip Larkin Walking around in the park should feel better than work. The lake, the sunshine, the grass to lie on, blurred playground noises beyond black-stockinged nurses. Not a bad place to be, yet it doesn't suit me. Being one of the men you meet of an afternoon, palsied old step-takers, Hair-eyed clerks with the jitters, waxed-fleshed outpatients still vague from accidents, and characters in long coats deep in the litter baskets, all dodging the toad work by being stupid or weak. Think of being them, hearing the hours chime, watching the bread delivered, the sun by clouds covered, the children going home, Think of being them, turning over their failures by some bed of lobelias. Nowhere to go but indoors. No friends but empty chairs. Now, give me my in-tray, my loaf-haired secretary, my shall I keep the call in, sir? What else can I answer when the lights come on at four at the end of another year? Give me your arm, old toad. Help me down Cemetery Road. So, Steve Connor, we've gone from you being Badger in your set at Peterhouse to Here's Toad with Philip Larkin deciding that maybe it's not so bad to work after all and we can't just have motor cars and parties and not do anything. I'm a bit worried about how you're going to handle retirement, though. I can see a book on play and rest coming up. I can't guarantee absolutely that I will give it up entirely. I think the old addiction might reassert itself. These, these things are for life, like dogs and heroin. 
Professor Steve Connor, thank you very much indeed for letting me share your thought lines today and long may they continue. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Thank you.